You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Let's turn to God's Word and the book of Job, chapter 38 and 39. I'm going to read this as we go along rather than read it all and then come back. There's quite a lot. Let's pray before we begin. Lord, this is your word. It is you speaking to us, and we pray that in the midst of all our doubts and fears and all our concerns, that we would have ears to hear, that we would have eyes to see, hearts to love, minds to understand, and wills to obey, for we ask it in your name. Amen. Some of you uh, are used to getting exams when you're asked question after question. I didn't do too well at science, and uh, I didn't fail any science exams, but I realized that that wasn't my gift. The two chapters that we look at this morning are almost a kind of science test that Job is given. Now, it's, these chapters are very strange. I was speaking to someone last week and they said, have you started uh, God's answer yet to Job? And I said, no, we start that next week. And they said, oh, good. But the trouble is, when you look at this answer, it, 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 it's not what we would expect at all. The world's so unfair. Job has gone through so much pain and sorrow. He has wept and he has raged. He has been in despair and pain. He's been treated unjustly. He's asking, why is God so unfair, so distant, and so silent? And then God speaks. And if we were writing this book, and if this were written in the church today, the story would be there'd be a book on there about how God spoke to me, And it would be, say, God came up to me and said, there, there, my child, I am your father, all is well. Or, might be a little bit harsher, might be along the lines of, right, you need to understand, this is what happened. The devil came and did this, and I had to use you to show this. But there's no answer given in that way. Here's a man who's lost his money, his house, his children, his health. He's sitting on a rubbish heap covered in sores, And what does God say to him? Look at the hippopotamus. It just seems uh, mad when you you look at this. You don't, you don't, how, how is this an answer to what Job has been going through? Well, we'll see why. The more I looked at this this week, and the more I've thought about this, the more I've just thought this is just really incredible and really amazing. And I'll tell you why it's incredible and amazing, because we're always looking for answers that answer us, that begin with us, and that end with us. And it is really hard for us to move beyond that. Some of you will come to church this morning because you've got nothing else better to do because there are people that you like, because you like the thing, you like the feeling that you get, and so on. And as long as it's about you, within six months or six years, you won't be here because you'll find somewhere else or something else that makes you feel better, makes you feel good. As long as it's about you, you won't get it. 
And when you're struggling and when you're suffering and you make it all about you, it's impossible. We have a natural tendency to make the universe revolve around us. And that's where the genius of this answer comes from. It's the Lord who speaks. Now, the speeches from God are important, first of all, because they happened. Job has been desiring to talk to God for a long time. So let's begin by starting at verse 1 of chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. God speaks out of the whirlwind, often used in the Bible as a symbol of divine revelation. For example, Psalm 18, verses 7 to 15. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 6, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. This is terrifying for Job because remember his troubles began when his children were killed in a great tornado and now God speaks out of the whirlwind and it's it's this is terrifying because God says to him who are you who are you I'm I'm going to question you you're asking questions I'm going to question you so they're important because of what they, they happened. They're important because of the one who speaks. The Lord, Yahweh, the personal name for the covenant-keeping God. The name revealed to God's suffering people out of the burning bush. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This personal God does come and does speak. Oswald Chamber puts this beautifully. When you're going through struggles and, and troubles, he says this, a man up against things feels that he has lost God, while in reality, he has come face to face with him. These speeches are also important because of what they miss. There's no mention here of Job's sin, because that's the other way we might have written this. We might have had the Lord coming and saying, Job, you said this. Job, you did this. Job, you were wrong in this. And he doesn't say anything about that. There is no attempt at all to answer the question why Job suffered. And none of Job's questions are actually answered. In fact, it's God who does the asking. In, in God's speeches from here on, there are 70 questions that he asked Job's. There's no mention of the deal with Satan. There's no mention of morality. There's no mention of religion. There is no attempt by God to justify himself. And again, we live in this crazy world where we as human beings think, well, God, this is not fair. God, that's not right. God, you've got to answer to me. And God says, I'm not answering. I don't answer to you. These speeches are remarkable in terms of their style and beauty. One man puts it this way, they transcend all other descriptions of the wonders of creation or the greatness of the creator, which are to be found either in the Bible or elsewhere. They're also remarkable for what they contain. They deal with the natural order. Now, as I said already, that may appear to be very, very strange. Why does God do this? It's not intended just to demonstrate his power and wisdom, but rather to consider the complexity and the mystery of the universe that God has created. What he does is two things. He takes the natural order and he runs it in parallel to the moral order 
And he's saying, this is beyond your understanding. You can't grasp this. You can't, you can't put this in a box. Some of it seems wrong. Some of it seems ugly. But it's all the work of a wise and a good God. The questions that's asked in this first speech are asked not to humiliate Job, but to challenge him to consider again. And you can count them, but God points to Job uh, 10 points of the natural order and nine species of animal. And you'll be thankful that I'm not going to give you a sermon on each one of those. But we will go through it. He's saying to Job, you don't understand. You don't have a true awareness of the facts and you need to brace yourself like a man. You ask questions. Okay, here it comes. Now brace yourself because I'm going to ask you. God is going to answer him and Job is going to have to think. And I think the main purpose in all of this is to get Job to consider the beauty and order of the created world. And it's almost as though, if this is not too frivolous an image, it's almost as though God is saying, come with me and take a walk around my garden. And then you'll understand something more of who I am. So we go on to verse 4. It's talking about the phenomenon of earth and heaven. Most of uh, chapter 38 does that. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? One of my favorite films is Terence Malick's The Tree of Life. And uh, when we went to see it down in the DCA, I knew from the beginning I was going to love it because to see a film that started with where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth. I mean, it's a slightly unusual film, but it was just, I I just absolutely uh, loved it. And Malik is, in that film, is considering what is life. And then he he just begins, in in a wonderful way, with this question that God asks Job. The The knowledge of the origin of the world is unknown to man. We do well to remember that. People say, oh, well, science has shown how the world began. No, no. Science has explained what happened after the Big Bang. But where does life come from? Where does consciousness come from? Where does the material come from to have the bang in the first place? Who did the banging? All that kind of stuff. None of that is answered. There are lots of images in the Bible to describe it. The world is is portrayed as a building with a foundation and a cornerstone built to plan with a measuring line to the accompaniment of the music of the morning stars. This is just an incredible picture, even in those few verses that you have there, that God is building to the sound of music. Now, the, the personal imagery of how the universe began and what God was doing in the world is far, far beyond anything that mere materialistic, no God science can give us. The angels sang as the world was created. Then on to verse 8. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further, here is where your proud waves halt. The sea, born from the womb of its mother and wrapped by gods in clouds, also a threat which must be kept locked behind doors and bars. 
There are rules, there are principles that God has instilled in the world, in the universe, which prevent the universe imploding or exploding and which prevent the whole world being a complete disaster. Now, somebody's going to say, yes, but there are disasters. What about what's happened in the Philippines? That's because when God created the world, he created it good. Man came in, was given uh, freedom and committed sin, and sin entered in and polluted the world, and the world is groaning, as Paul says. It's groaning as in the pangs of childbirth ever since. But the principles are still largely and basically the same. The world is not chaos. Verse 12 Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. The coming of the dawn is beyond Job's understanding. It too is a wonderful thing. Standing and admiring and looking and seeing and observing what God has done. Do you give orders to the morning? Do you say when the sun is going to rise? Verse 19, uh, sorry, verse 16. Have you journeyed to the springs of the earth or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Beneath the earth is the idea of this, this whole mystery. The janitors of the shadowlands, the shadows of death, the underworld with its vast expanses. God is telling Job there is so much more than what you see. Do you know? Verse 19, what is the way to the abode of light and where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Did you know the past to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. One of the justifications sometimes for sarcasm, because God did it. Surely you must know you've lived so many years. In this one, light and darkness are portrayed as beings which have their own homes to which they return at the proper times. And then on verse 22, have you entered the the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no man lives, a desert with no one in it, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it spout with grass? Does the air, does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? When the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen. Went and uh, saw uh, Gravity, the film Gravity, and Sandra Bullock and uh, George Clooney, and everyone's kind of raving about it, and it'll probably get lots of Oscars. Uh, I didn't like it very much. A few great special effects if you watch it in 3D. Um, the story is really Hollywood twee. It's awful. Now, if you want the Hollywood version of the world, that's it. And it, people are saying it's deep and profound. I'm going, deep and profound? Have you read Job? It's not deep and profound. Because it's about being up in space. And I'll not give the complete storyline away, but there isn't really much of a storyline. Um, it's about being up in space. 
And anyway, Sandra gets back from space and she's always looking, they're looking down on Earth and Earth and Earth and Earth and gets down to Earth and, you know, lands in the in a, in a middle of a, a loch or something and uh, escapes from that and comes ashore on Earth and all this kind of rather bizarre, it's meant to be subtle melodrama, but it's not really, it's about woman, man, woman, merging out of the primeval swamp and from Mother Earth, which is warm and enclosing and so on. No. No. Mother Earth doesn't exist. It's Earth. The Gaia hypothesis. It's Earth. It's trees. It's wind. It's Earth. Who gave birth to the Earth? That's what's being asked. The Earth is not God. God is God. And that's what God is saying here. He's saying to Job, look and see. Not just the earth though. Verse 31, can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? You don't know, you can't. I mean, go up to Balgay Hill, go to the observatory, look at the stars. It just overwhelms you. It just completely swamps you. And God says to Job, do you know this? Do you know this? These are but the outer fringe of my power. Verse 34, can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourselves with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. Who endowed the heart with wisdom or gave understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? Job, you can't even influence the rain. God tips over the water jars. It's God who gives the heart wisdom and the mind understanding. Isn't that an extraordinary thing? Because there are some of you who will think this. You will think, I understand and I grasp. And how do I come to understand and how do I come to grasp? How can I think? How can I be conscious? How can I work it all out? Well, it's because the the chemicals that are me have evolved over many, many, many billions of years. So we've reached this peak of perfection that is humanity today. And God says, you didn't get wisdom and understanding from that. I am wisdom and I am understanding. I think in all of that, these verses, there's a simple application. Uh, We're going to sing in a moment, but just before we do that, and then go on to look at the next bit, um, let me just say just a couple applications of all of this. First of all, we should enjoy the world that God has made. Sometimes the best cure for the blues and for depression is to go for a a walk and to observe the world that God has made. Atkinson says it is by enjoying the Creator's handiwork that we often begin to feel again the touch of the Creator's hand. Just marvel at what God has done. Another application is simply to let God be God. We constantly make mankind the center of the universe. But can we run the world? No. And that applies to the moral universe as well. Be thankful that God is in control. That God says, this far you may come and no further. As Christians, we may be despairing at the state of our society. That's the waves and and, and all the troubles and pressures that are coming in so many different directions. Please do not think that this world is out of control and that God does not know. God lets human beings go so far and then he says, that's enough. 
This far you may come and no further. Isaiah 40, 26, lift your eyes up to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Let God be God. And then maybe this helps us grow in our Christian lives. We grow by becoming smaller. Job, like us, has a finite and limited understanding. The great subjects mentioned in this chapter, Earth's rotation, oceanic currents, meteorology, the origin and dispersal of light. It's true that scientists today have explored these issues and could give a better answer than Job. But there is so much still to learn, so much still to find out. The nature and the meaning of death, the purpose of life, love, consciousness, so many things. We've really, as human beings, only begun to explore the book of God's creation. And as we, as we look and as we marvel at, at the, the power and the strength around us, we don't worship the creation, but we worship the creator. Let's do that. Let's sing Psalm 147. We're going to sing verses 24 to 36. Um, the whole psalm is, is reflecting on that. Uh, we're going to sing it to the tune, High for it all. Oh Lord, how many are your wonders? Wisely you have made them all. All earth is full of all your creatures, living things, both great and small. Let's stand and sing these words to God's praise. Continue on chapter 38, verse 39, into um, chapter 39 as well. And God switches to the animals. And the animals that are all mentioned here are not your cute, cuddly kittens, and they're not your cows, and so on. They are animals that are usually considered mysterious or useless or hostile. And God is saying, these are part of my creation as well. It's almost like an imagery for suffering, that suffering can be hurtful and as enigmatic as the wild animals can be. Charles Darwin, when he looked at the suffering caused by certain animals, caused him to question the whole being and existence of God. And there are others who have those same questions because of suffering. But God says here that he knows what he is doing. I think he refers here to animals that are not really cared for by humans. So, Verse 39, do you hunt the lion for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the ravens when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? He's saying there's a whole realm of creation which exists entirely independently of human beings. 39 Verse 1, do you know when the mountain birds give, goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe breaks her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. Again, animals untouched by human interference. Verse 5, who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied his ropes? I gave him the wasteland as his home, the salt flats as his habitat. He laughs at the commotion in the town. He does not hear a driver's shout. He ranges the, hill for his, the hills for his pasture and searches for any 
green thing. What use is the wild donkey? Completely useless in human terms. What's the point of wild animals? Would it matter if all the fish in the world were farm fish and there were no wild ones? If everything was controlled in the way that man wants it? If we think we can control nature? And the answer we're getting from God is yes, it does matter because it wasn't created all for you. Even the wild animals exist for God. Verse 9, will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will he stay by your manger at night? Can you hold him to the furrow with a harness? Will he fill the valleys beyond you? Will you rely on him for his great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to him? Can you trust him to bring in your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The, unicorn, the, the authorized version of the Bible translates this unicorn. It's the difference between the wild ox and the domestic ox. It's not a unicorn, but it's what's called an orca, a bison. Um, if, you're, if you're interested at all, this is just a really weird thing, but it's where uh, um, Tolkien got this whole idea of the orcs uh, from out of Lord of the Ring. Uh, Lord of the Rings, just this, the way that this word is developed. You're six feet wide at the shoulders with long horns pointing forward. Um, it's an animal that's now extinct. The last one died in 1627. In Psalm 22, verse 21, the psalmist asks that he be delivered from the horns of this animal. This is a really wild, a really wild, impressive animal, never to be domesticated. God says it's mine. Verse 13, the wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, but they cannot compare with the pinions and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was in vain, for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. Some animals are wild and free like the wild ox. Others, like the ostrich, are simply ridiculous. God has created animals whose behavior makes no sense. The largest living bird, weighing up to 300 pounds, reaching a height of seven or eight feet, the only bird with two toes, all others have three or four, and get this, something new, I bet none of you knew this, the only bird with eyelashes. That's the ostrich, the only bird with eyelashes. And although it has wings, it cannot fly. Its stupidity was legendary in Arab thought, hiding its head in the sand, yet it could run up 40 miles an hour. And what God is saying is, if I choose to make a ridiculous bird, I can. It's the diversity that exists within the creation, the incredible diversity. Verse 19, do you give the horse his strength or close his neck with a flowing mane? Do you make him leap like a locust, striking terror with his proud snorting? He pours fiercely, rejoicing in his strength and charges into the fray. He laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. He does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against his side, along with the flashing spear and lance. In frenzied excitement, he eats up the ground. He cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. At the blast of the trumpet, he snorts, aha! He catches the scent of battle from afar, the shout of commanders and the battle cry. The war horse has a strength and courage with, which clothe it with mystery. How can it laugh at fear? How can it be so brave? Uh, I used to go to football matches sometimes with uh, Rangers supporters. And for some bizarre reason, they weren't trusted. And you would find that various police forces would come. And 
I'll tell you this, one policeman on a horse was worth 20 without a horse because just so powerful and so strong and that's what's being uh, exemplified here. Verse 26, does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread his wings towards the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build his nest on high? He dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is his stronghold. From there he seeks out his food. His eyes detect it from afar. His young ones feast on blood. And where the slain are, there is he. Again, the hawk and the eagle, they seem again to be useless, killers and unclean, and yet created by God and their natural instincts, their wisdom comes from them. And it's not romantic. Verse 40 is young ones feast on blood. This is no idealistic notion of nature, but nature red in tooth and claw. If Job can accept that, then he can accept that at least some cases of human suffering arise simply from the unfathomable wisdom of God. Now, all of that has been said, and we'll go and look another time later on at uh, the rest of what God says. All of that has been said to Job, who is suffering to tell him some basic things, that God created everything, that God is above everything, and that just as in the natural universe, so in the moral world, God knows and sustains everything. Matthew chapter 6, I think, is Jesus' application of this. Matthew 6 and verse 25. And it This only makes sense if you have this very high view of God that we are taught in Job. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus says, consider the lilies. Jesus says, consider the sparrows. God has not lost his power. He is still there. He is still in control. He still cares. He is not just great. He is also loving, and his providence still works. One of the lessons that we take from this is that even in the face of the most incredible suffering and the most awful circumstances and the worst news you could possibly hear, God is still God, and God is still the ruler over all his creation, including us. I think another aspect of this is the joy of God. His joy in creating. We saw that the morning stars sang together. We sang that. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. It is extraordinary 
that that is the case. You need the Creator. Life is unknowable without Him. To unlock the door, you need the key. To get the key, you need the locksmith. Job is being told, I am God, the one who understands and controls the creation. We understand something even greater than that. We understand that he is God. He is the one who can say, who are you? Why do you question me? But he's also the one who sent us an answer in his son, Jesus Christ. And that son is standing there and saying to us, Each day has got enough trouble of its own. Consider the lilies. Consider the sparrows. And no, don't worry about all these things. That's why in chapter 40 of Job, verse 1, just, we'll just, maybe just finish with this. We go into chapter 40. Uh, I think it's a connecting part of it. The Lord said to Job, will the one who, con- who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. God is not being contemptuous of Job, but inviting him to respond to this. And Job's response will be one of humility. And that's to be our response. Humility, repentance. He'd said too much against God and he'd been in denial about God. And worship. We stand in awe of God and what he has done. This is not poetry about nature, but nature is poetry about God. The trees clap their hands. The birds sing. There is the, the skies declare the glory of God. All nature is poetry about God. And you and I, as we face up to all of this, I think the, the lessons that we have to learn are this. In our confused state and in our hurt and in our pain and in our doubts and in our fears, we must hold on to this, that there is a God who created everything, who is the Lord of everything, who sustains everything, that there are many, many mysteries and many, many questions that we do not and possibly cannot have the answer to. But we know that the God who created everything will keep us. Why? Why will he do that? Because of who he is in himself, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And because of Jesus Christ. He is the express image of God. He is the exact representation of his being. I think many times in this life, we are tempted to two different errors. One is self-reliance. Back to um, Sandra Bullock in Gravity. I can just be strong enough. I can make my own future. And I'm sorry, but that's not the way the universe is. You can't control your own circumstances, never mind the circumstances of the whole universe. But I think the other er- error that we make is, is just to be overwhelmed and just to be in despair. Maybe we try and understand everything, and sometimes we can't. Sometimes we are left with this 
just the sure and certain knowledge that in the midst of all the confusion, there's this awesome and almighty God who is not only that, but who loves us and has demonstrated and shown his love for us by sending his son. We worship him, and that is to be our response. And I hope and I pray, if you're not a believer, that you will come to know that God. And I hope and I pray that if you are a believer, that you'll be lifted out of your doubts and your fears. And when the Lord questions us, that we bow before him and we acknowledge that we trust him absolutely and completely in the midst of it all. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.